the characters that you focus on will become part of you and actually change you. Welcome to Daring to Tell, the podcast where writers read their true stories of personal daring, mostly. Then we talk about writing and life. I am your host, Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. And nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. This episode makes me want to quote Renee Magritte's Treachery of Images painting, the one with the picture of a pipe and underneath it scripted words that say, This is not a pipe. I love Magritte. Today is not a true story. However, I think we'll indeed dip into the arena of personal daring, which I am discovering is pretty much a standard ingredient for anyone who dares to put pen to paper or hover fingertips over little square letters on a keyboard to create the representation of something, maybe even of truth. One funny story that comes to mind I may have told before, so if I did, please bear with me. It is about my mom. From time to time, she discovers a book she really wants to tell me about. This one in particular that I'm thinking of, I don't recall the name of the book, the author of the book, or even the full plot of the book, but she began telling me the story about it with so much enthusiasm that I had to stop her and ask, and this really happened? Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. It's just a story. It was a novel. This is where I discover my enthusiasm sags because, you know, they made it up. But she continued on, and again, I'm kind of making up the whole crux of whatever the story was, but she concluded with something to the effect of, and so they came home from the funeral, and there, on the radiator, were his shoes. A magical and significant detail that clearly, for her, brought the whole story together. Perhaps, just my guess here, proving that there is consciousness beyond life on this earth, or that there is life after death, a common theme in my mom's literary yearnings. And, by the way, mine, too. But they made it up, I said to her for about the fourth time as she had relentlessly pushed forward with her story. But the shoes were there on the radiator. But they made that up. Well, still, I found it very inspiring. I think it could be true. Oh, I love my mom. I do. Yet... For today's book, I chose a story related to all these themes. Life after death, starting again, solving mysteries, although of a more hard-boiled variety. Most of all, completely made up 
by the writer Jody J. Sperling. Jody and I had struck up a bit of a podcasting writerly friendship a while back, and this past year he asked me to read his new book, The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi, and to speak with him about it on his podcast, TRBM. I was very honored to do so. So, Then I thought that the craft and themes used in fiction are not all that much more of a stretch than in memoir. So here we go. Daring to tell about fiction. I am very excited to have you back for another episode of Daring to Tell. I guess you were on a you were on for a bonus before, but today we are talking about your book. Yay. The Nine Lives of Marva DeLonghi. DeLonghi. Yeah. I still can't say yeah, it right. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, DeLonghi. So, okay. Um, I, I always tell people it, there's there's a riff in her name that's a very loose connection to the long goodbye. And so it's oh. DeLonghi. But it's, like oh. I said, just a very loose connection to a, another brilliant, and mine's not brilliant, but this one is uh, a <sighs> novel in the hard-boiled detective kind of genre. Oh, okay. I love hearing all the little loose connections you have, loose or, you know, allusions to things. And so we're certainly going to talk about some of those today. Fairly recently, I was getting acupuncture done (laughs) for ongoing GI things that I have that, you know, TMI. Anyways, there was an air filter. There's some air filter or some sort of device called DeLonghi. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. I saw that. And I was like, hey, does this have a connection to this book? <laughs> now I've got to look it up. It, it doesn't intentionally. Um, I, and I will yeah. tell you the other connection that wasn't supposed to be there is the uh, kind of secondary main character, Lyle Kapachnik. Yes. He appeared in my very first novel, which was more of an autofiction like Brad Listy. Ah. Um, and... His name was based on Lyle Lovett, whom is like my favorite musician by a country mile. I mean, I just love Lyle Lovett. And so it's a tribute to him. However, my wife, maybe not thinking or also just in love with Lyle Lovett, we went to see him in concert in Lincoln, Nebraska, and he blew us both away. We got a Great Dane, and Uh without consulting me, she named him Lyle. Uh, so, oh. so we have a dog named Lyle. I've got a character named Lyle. We just love Lyle, love it. And there's Lyles everywhere. And, and did you say it's a Great Dane? Yeah, he's a Great Dane. Yeah. So that really matches for your character, Doesn't who it? I picture as this big, hulking, huge kind of guy. That's yeah. very funny. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing is, you know, shall we state the obvious here first? You know, I talk with memoirists on Daring to Tell. And so my headline here today for everyone is, this is not a memoir. How could that (laughs) possibly be? Michelle is talking fiction with someone. Um, But I was at this literary salon recently, which was very fun. It was put on by a writer who I had just met, who by... A whole bunch of coincidences happens to live in Maine. And so she was putting this event together. And because it was her first one and we had just met, it was very lovely. And she said, Oh, you have a podcast. I'd love to invite you to be our guest. So I got to be the sort of guest of honor for this wow. inaugural event for a little, you know, it was very intimate and it was really fun. And, but a lot of the 
discussion is, you know, fiction is another way to tell the truth. Yeah. And so when I when you asked me to read your book, I was very excited and I was like this is a little different. I usually yeah. don't read fiction. I was not even all that versed in the genre called speculative fiction or and yeah. it's a detective. So, I thought, okay, this will be fun. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it was intense. So, yeah. I've said this to you before. It kind of parts of it are I was like, "Oh boy." Mm-hmm. Like we'll we'll dig it you know we'll talk about that a little bit because there's a lot of blood and guts and scary things yeah but the the truth that can be told through fiction and the bigger themes you know listening to your podcast Mm. as i have i didn't mention jody hosts a podcast called trbm which i have very was very thrilled to be a guest for and got to talk with you on your podcast about this book. So we've kind of talked about this in a few places, but in a funny way, we didn't get into so much the origin story stuff. So let me start with, how does writing fiction help you in your life? Because I'm always curious about the connections to me, that to me, and I feel like for so many writers, mm-hmm. writing is about living. And so, yeah. how is it for you? Oh, there's. I mean, there's so many questions. So it's funny. I just got off a phone call with a, a close friend of mine. She is a, a, a great writer, Heather O'Brien. She's writing the Lockhart Sound and a couple of other novels that are, I think, pulled from her own life. But we were we were talking about how fiction gives you the ability to escape the expectations of revelation. It's, it goes underneath what you're hoping to get. So if you read a biography, mm. I want this really very honest rendering of, of JFK. I mean, I've read so many JFK biographies or uh, Teddy Roosevelt's another, and I want, I want those to be true. And when I find out that someone like Edmund Morris wrote The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt and that he kind of fictionalized some parts to make it more entertaining, that makes me angry yes. because I want a real rendering. But if you drop TR in a novel and I know for sure that it's a novel, then I get really excited about seeing that character appear and what you might do with the essence of that person. And I think that fiction is uniquely suited to help us explore ourselves without the consequences of having to get all of the facts correct. Truth Mm -hmm. and facts are different. I think it was the the late night show hosts. I can't think of his name right now. Came up with the concept of truthiness. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Colbert. Thank you, Colbert. And, And I think that in truthiness, there is fiction and fiction lives there really comfortably but it doesn't mean that there's not fact in it as well. And and so I, I enjoy the play with that. Did I answer your question, by the way? Well, you know what? <laughs> you start, it, it has to, kind of, it has to do with with what's real and what isn't. And, and that is such a big question in writing in general. And that's, yeah. I think that you're tapping into one of the big questions, which is to say that often in memoir, I think more egregiously, in biography, as you point out, sometimes there's another book that I know also 
made stuff up. I'm not, I'm not going to cite yeah. it because I can't remember, but yeah. yeah, if there's stuff made up in biographies, you go, um, what yeah. the heck are we doing here? Right. You know, that's a sphere where we are trying to be accurate and memoir has come under a lot of scrutiny in the past, at least decade, you know, yep. starting with, um, was it a million little pieces or yes, absolutely. James a couple Fry. Of books yep. at that point. Yeah. And what is true and what feels true. And I think that there are plenty of examples where deeper truth, it's interesting that you say about revelation, because in a funny way, fiction is sort of more poised for yeah. revelation. So, yeah. uh, so I guess, let me, let me respond to what you're saying. And I, I, I still don't know if I'm necessarily answering your question, but uh, back when my wife was very first pregnant, there was a reading at University of Nebraska Omaha by an author that I just absolutely adore. Her name's Joanne Beard. She wrote a memoir called The Boys of My Youth, and she tackles so many things. And and so she came to do a reading. I believe actually it was from a novel called In Zanesville that she was doing the reading from. But I was so excited to meet her. I had a little bit of a crush on her, even though she was far far older than I was. It's just because I read those essays in the boys of my youth. And I thought this person's mind is so lovely. And so like, I just mm. immersive, I dive into it. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the reading and she was every bit as good as I wanted it to be. Sometimes readers are not particularly compelling and, and you kind of wait for the Q and a, because then you get a piece of them versus the book feels a little bit rigid and stiff. Uh, mm -hmm. She wasn't that way. Her reading was great. It was so emotionally filled and when we got to the end, people were asking the questions. And so rarely will I put myself out in a, in a public setting because I don't want to feel stupid. But in this case, I said, is there ever an occasion for you when you're writing your essays where you fictionalize something to communicate a deeper truth? And I'm going to botch what she said, but the, the essence of it has stayed with me all this time. She said, yeah, all the time. So she said, for example, there's a, a spot in my essays where I talk about sitting in a red velvet upholstered chair. And she said, that chair doesn't exist. But I knew that if I did red and I did velvet, that the reader would visualize those two things and that it would be to them much like a laser pointer on what I was about to say. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the sentence, the paragraph, the moment following that was a very poignant moment in her essay. And she did that to make sure that her reader stopped and experienced it. And I thought that is the most truth I can possibly think of. And I'm so glad that she fictionalized mm -hmm. that moment for me because I might have missed it if she wasn't so deft at pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see that. And that is, I think, really speaks to the craft too yeah. of writing. Like how do you bring out imagery that is relevant and meaningful to the subject matter, whether it's true or possibly not, that allows the reader to be in that scene much more. I know that there's a writing teacher who leads a lot of different sorts of classes, and she does one, I think, called Memoir Boot Camp, Allison K. Williams. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know of her. Yeah, no, she so. does. She's the editor of Brevity Blog, which is a great oh. blog to check out if now, you have not read it. 
Brevity Dinty Moore, did he actually start it? Is he the founder? Yes. Okay, so yeah, I know he Dinty. Does, yeah. He, I think, brought in Allison to be the social media director mm. of the blog, whereas he runs the magazine. I might okay. be getting some yeah, sure, details sure. a little wrong. But yeah, they're both connected with that. Anyways, what was my point about her? Oh, yes, about <laughs> imagery and filling a space with physicality because she came from sort of stage acting, ended up going into the circus of oh, all wow. things. But that really helped because she then in reading, she'll really, the way that she works with students and writers is to say, you know, like, where is this person standing when this is, how, you know, to bring yes. it to life a lot more. So. Yeah. Those are all the ways that the craft helps us to describe what yeah. we have to say. And that is one thing that I think you did brilliantly in well, you. your novel, in your detective. What am I going to call it, Jody? Is it a novel? Yeah, it's a novel. In your novel. Yep, for sure. So, <laughs> I mean, you have Lyle eating a gazillion types of food that I yeah. like have a stomach ache after watching it. I'm like, yeah. how does he live, you know, with a new yeah. piece of fruit in his pocket and all the time yeah. and, you know, all this stuff. But you bring so much action, so much scenery mm. to everything that's happening, sometimes horrifyingly so yeah. in some pretty grisly situations. But the craft of the writing helped lend itself to something more. And I guess what I will ask to sort of connect it again back more to you, mm. which is who, what parts of who you are came out in this book? Like how, yeah. how does who you are relate to the story of the nine lives of Marva DeLonghi? Yeah. And I don't know if you want to even give a brief sort of synopsis of the book. Yeah, thank you. I mean, thanks thanks for that little bit of guidance. So the way that I pitch the book to readers, if they've never heard of it before, is it's like The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler meets Groundhog Day, the film with Bill Murray. And uh, <laughs> so there's a big mystery at the heart of it. And every time that the main character, Luke E. Mia, dies, uh, she has to go back to the beginning moment when she meets her client to try to solve this mystery. And it never is really resolved as to why the magic starts. But as soon as she's able to satisfactorily keep Marva alive, then the loop stops. Okay, so your question was, what part of me is in the novel? And it's such a big question, because I don't know that this will always be who I am as a writer. But at this time mm -hmm. in my life, it's almost as if I fragmented myself into 35 different characters, 50 characters. I mean, there's a lot of names in this book. I'll be honest. There are a lot yeah. of people and they have bit parts. Yes. But every person that shows up, I think, represents a piece of me that I really am exploring. Uh, mm. And in a funny way, because of that, when people don't love the novel, I take it really personally, not because... I think that they dislike the writing or the genre or the style, but because it feels like a rejection of a little piece of me. Yeah. And maybe that's true of other novelists. You'd have to have conversations with people along the way to figure out if that's true. Because I imagine in memoir, if somebody critiques the memoir, it's got to hurt to be like, that's my life. 
that is actually my lived experience. And, and so I think that that's true of this mm-hmm. novel as well. So I'll, I'll give some examples and interrupt me if you want, because I feel like I could just riff on this for a bit. But um, <laughs> sure. So Luke is uh, and, and she's never mentioned as being as rabid in her appetites as Lyle because we're more accepting of, of smokers and drinkers in this culture for strange mm-hmm. reasons. But she's smoking. I mean, it's got to be upwards of she's like 90 cigarettes a day. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I, And she's drinking all the time. I'm like, wait a minute. What time is quantity, it? I, I'm like. <laughs> yes. The quantity of booze that she's drinking is physically impossible. <laughs> but yeah. it is a reflection of my addictive personality. My, my mm. um, uncle on my mom's side overdosed and died. Um, then her I'm other sorry. brother overdosed and died as well. So two of her brothers did. Wow. Um, oh, gosh. And this isn't like, this is all known stuff. So I'm not revealing no. anything for the first yeah. time, but my mom yeah. is addicted to opiates. Um, I have struggled with alcoholism. I've been through AA uh, and continue to try to figure out like what it means to be a person who can be in control mm-hmm. of, of his appetites. Yeah. And so mm. Luke represents that as does Lyle and his eating represent that mm-hmm. um, the like compulsion to excess is 100% imprinted on me, but there's also this, I think exploration of, I think this is true. This is a continuing ongoing belief that even a person who is flawed can be brilliant. A person who's flawed can be feeling and loving and loyal and heartfelt. Mm-hmm. And so I try to make my characters that as well, because that's a, a question, even though I'm pretty uh, broken as a person, am I able to contribute something to the people around me? I'm married. I have three children. Mm-hmm. I try to show mm-hmm. up the best that I can every day. Yeah, And I think that those things are all imprinted into the novel. It, it's like Luke really messes up in some pretty major ways I really, I know for sure that I was thinking about myself when I would give her every mess up, then it was me being able to reflect on myself. So, and and then I'll shut up because really I I just could go on and on. I quit smoking during the process of actually writing this novel. So when I started writing the novel, I was a cigarette smoker and about halfway through, it was a five-year process for me for for the Nine Lives of Marvin Alonghi. I switched over to vaping because I didn't want my son to see me smoking cigarettes. And I thought if nothing else, I can at least distance myself from that. Like, I don't care if he ends up as a smoker, I'll still love him. I'm not going to judge him, but I want him to be able to choose based on himself. And then slowly I weaned myself off of vaping and I haven't smoked a cigarette in 36 months or so. So, you know, that's one thing. Yeah. Huge. Congratulations. You know, I, I have not been a smoker. My dad smoked for many years and I watched from that. I know how hard it is. So yeah. Yeah, it's unlike it's unlike anything, but I I do think that the novel itself has a lot of that experience woven into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very deep and so thank you for sharing all that and yeah. and I think in terms of I have to say, you know, part of why I love memoir and why I love reading in general is I think that we're all flawed, broken characters mm. in so many different ways. And um, seeing the humanity through the brokenness is part of 
what I believe is, I don't usually like to say these things because they sound quite grandiose, but yeah. not the answer, but an, an answer. You yes. know, I mean, I think to have more compassion and understanding for the brokenness of who we all are, you know, often with ourselves can be <laughs> one of the hardest ones to do. So, yeah. and I really, you know, I think that doing that in fiction gives you, I'm projecting here, a little yeah, more do. oomph to like explore that in mm -hmm. a, a little bit more protected way. So yes. I don't know. It's a really good point. I believe you and I agree with you. And uh, there may be other novelists or fiction writers who, who feel differently than I do. But something in memoir that I think is absolutely critical, and going back to Joanne Beard, because I, I love her work so much, she's discovered some things about life that are just true. And so she's able to write these essays with this like degree of revelation and understanding mm. that help those essays to land. I don't know that I'm at that point in my life. I don't actually think I understand myself quite well enough to write an essay because in an essay, I can't give you a grand conclusion. I can just be like, this is where I'm at. And I do think that may be slightly less compelling, to be honest. Hmm. Like I'm in the middle, I'm in the thick of it right now. I don't, I don't know yeah. myself very well. I try. Oh gosh, I could jump off in about a million directions from <laughs> that one. I yeah. was listening to a podcast just this morning. I love Danny Shapiro's family secrets. Oh, I don't know if yeah. you've ever heard that one. And I haven't listened in a while. So I was able to go back to a prior season and kind of start. And she did an interview with this doctor, Dr. Gabor Mate, I think is how yeah. you say his name. Do you know yep. him? The book I is do. The Myth of Normal. Well, mm -hmm. one of the things he said in this episode that I like stopped the episode right there and I repeated it to myself like 5,000 times as I continued yeah. my walk. I was almost back home. We are writing about the stuff we need to learn. Mm -hmm. I That's feel right. like that kind of nails it for me mm -hmm. and for stuff that I work on. And I think for essays, you know, you don't have to, I think a truth about something right now, I'm not sure there are any grand conclusions ever mm. i don't know yeah i don't either i i sense that and, and and maybe i'm wrong too but i do sense that when i read a great memoir or a great essay and even great let's take that word out of it when i read one that resonates with me even like mm -hmm. cheryl strayed her her big book it resonated because I, not only did i feel myself inside of that book and i wish i remembered the title right now but I also wild. I, thank you. Wild. Yeah. It's a lovely book. Um, <laughs> even though it's really popular. Him. Sometimes I hate like citing yeah. one of the most popular ones, but no, it's a good, I book know what I'm you really... mean. I know exactly yeah. what you mean, but yes, I like that one too. Yeah. It just captures a sense of, of me, me also. I, I am like you, I can resonate with you, but also I'm so impressed by your ability to just perform an operation on yourself on the table mm -hmm. in front of me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, it's funny cause I am impressed by fiction because I often say to myself, if I could just make something up, I would, <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I don't, I mean, on one hand, I know I'm a creative person in many ways, yeah. 
But I often just go, I, I don't know. How would I make that up? But mm. I think that it can start with a little premise. For example, <laughs> how do we solve this problem without yeah. dying? You know, so yeah. uh, Luke has to figure out this nut that she has to crack in Marva DeLonghi and mm -hmm. she fails lots of times. So, yes. and there we come to the redemption. And here's another one of my questions. It has to do with like naming people. Cause you had mm, some, yep. a lot of fun with many names that are yes, wacky, crazy names. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I know that you named her Luke E Mia. Yeah. For, Leukemia. That's and right. so why cancer? Why cancer, Joe? Oh, such a great question. What was question. the cancer connection? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, part of it is fun. Like, I, I just thought, oh, that's mm. leukemia is like a, a name, leukemia. <laughs> and I thought of, you can't have the last name Mia and, and be like a, a really masculine feeling character to the reader, which is hilarious to me, by the way, because mm -hmm. it turns out that all of my negative reviews on the book have either to do with Lyle's eating or Luke's name. Um, <laughs> oh, people, funny. I, I, I just recently got a, a note from a guy who bought the book and he said, um, I, I gave it my best effort. I read about halfway through and I just couldn't keep getting confused about Luke being a, a female. Yeah, And I wrote him back and there was this moment of irony because he addressed me, Jody, J-O-D-I. Oh, uh, which is the typical or, or normal feminine spelling of my name. Jody right. is about 85% female and 15% male. And so that in and of itself was part of the naming convention for Luke was give her a masculine right. name, but have her be, I think, yeah. and I yeah. hope in all the best ways, very feminine. I hope that she's an extremely feminine character. And I don't know if I succeeded, but I tried as hard as I could. And I talked to uh, <laughs> yeah. numerous women to try to do that, but still right. strong, you know? Yeah. Um, so the cancer though is uh, I've had, I've had multiple people in my family uh, struggle through cancer. A couple mm. we lost sadly. And my mom uh, is so far beat cancer. Um, and so I feel like pulling that into the story and having it be actually a joke the whole time. It's always mm. a joke. Every time it comes up, she's, she's not just a cancer because she was born in July, which is her astrological sign, but she's a cancer because her name is a cancer. Right. Um, you know, it makes, uh, first of all, I, I respect the inclination to sort of like take the ugly thing and turn it into a joke a little bit. You know, there's some yeah. like self disparagement there, which I also recognize is like, I'll be the first person to put myself down so that nobody else can do it. You know, yeah. let me be, let me beat everyone else to it. It's probably yeah. not one of my best traits, but I try to at least be curious and aware. And that's, you know, that's definitely what I see in you and your writing too, is like the curiosity and I'm going into this and I have awareness. Um, yeah. You know, not to, belabor the cancer thing but i'm trying to think what there was a comedian we're making all these references here today perhaps some <laughs> yeah. unsighted about cancer when it kills a person of course the cancer dies too <laughs> i am being like right. very um 
gallows humor here and i don't mean to be jokey about it because i totally get that it's not but again this theme of coming back from something that kills you again and again and again is also a theme of redemption and resilience and the determination which i also see to get something right to work really hard at something no matter what. So those are the other things that, where does that part come from? Because I see a deep commitment in you, again, sort of from what the the yeah. book is and what I've heard on the podcast. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, I was texting back and forth with Heather this morning, the lady who wrote the Lockhart Sound. And I think a lot of it came from this frustration. I have an event coming up in Omaha called Books for Brews. And it's just my effort to try to tell people, hey, I wrote a novel that actually takes place in a real city. And it happens to be our city. And the restaurants and the bars are all real places. Right, Um, Right. And I try as hard as I can to love those places, not just to mention them to ground you, but to actually say, hey, um, Jake's, Thank you so much for making a place where I can go and have a beer uh, and smoke a cigar, which again, I don't, I don't do anymore, but thank you for making that place. That's so wonderful. And Leo's diner is in the next book, but that's a huge piece. It's even on the cover of the follow-up book. There's block 16 and there's all these different places. Dos de Oros is a great taco truck. And I try to love them because they're so important to my real world. And so I think I didn't, fully answer your question <laughs> but um, resilience what's well I, i'll take off with yeah, what you, you were saying about the because yeah. i found it very fun for that reason and i got the sense very much that it was a real yeah. place so those yeah. are some of the things that ground us in reality where we can sort of take off on a wild ride from from there on yeah. out so the resilience piece thank you for yeah. getting me back <laughs> is that books for bruce is going to be a flop I've got maybe a couple of weeks left to keep advertising for it, but not many people are going to show up. I did get the agreement to partner with Stories Coffee and Block 16 to show up. And to anybody who buys one of my books, I'm pricing them at the cost of a brew of coffee or a brew of beer. So you can buy it. And then, you know, it's it's basically a freebie, really. And that's what I wanted it to be. But in my mind, I knew for sure that this was going to just be a massive hit. And it's not going to be a massive hit. Uh, And so I think that that's part of my person is that I forget the consequences of pain. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me able to just keep going on. I start a podcast. It doesn't go well. Instead of quitting, I forget how much it hurts. And I move on to a new way of trying to publicize it and make people hear it and, and, and get people's attention. When I write a book and I don't sell a thousand copies on the first day, I forget how much that feels like a failure and I try again in a different way to do it. Mm. And so that is absolutely central to me as a person. I can't tell you for sure that I will ever have a Stephen King like audience, but uh, I don't think I'll ever quit. I'm not sure many people will. (laughs) I know exactly. I know. But I I get the, the big dreams too. You know, like I, yeah, sometimes live a very wild fantasy of my own life and how fantastic it's all going to be. But I, you know, and in ways, sometimes it is in ways, sometimes it is not. But, um, but in terms of, you know, the creative endeavor and connecting with people, which I think is at the heart of what 
most writers are trying to do in some way, shape or form, whether or not we're writing, yeah. you know, sort of the question, are we writing for ourselves? Are we writing for an audience? Those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But that's very interesting about forgetting pain, because I think that that's important. Like in a certain way, yeah. we have to forget pain to move on. Yeah. Sometimes when I have experienced physical pain, I've gone to great lengths to try and make myself remember it. Oh, wow. I don't really know why. <laughs> I, okay. I feel like, why? Why do I have to make... It's sort of like, I can't forget how bad this was. Hmm. Um, but, like, here's actually a funny example, because I, going back to the acupuncturist, for some reason, the first time I went to see her, Mm -hmm. She did a thing with a certain channel. Well, that night I went to bed. I was asleep. Mm. I got, and again, in the realm of pain, I'm, I always have to qualify. You know, people live with far worse pain sure. yep. every like day it. than what I have had. So I'm always just so careful about talking about stuff like this. But yeah. I mean, I've had like Charlie horses in my calf before, but this was like a full leg cramp that started oh yeah in my foot heel went all the way up through my hip i mean i didn't know what was happening and i was so freaked out i was like i i, I don't i don't know what's happening to my body and it just got mm. so bad and feels like yep this happens sometimes just can you get up can you walk mm. around and i was like holding onto my foot i can't move i can't Oh, yeah. I was so terrified that my body did something completely against my will that yeah. I went back and I was like, um, I had this horrible thing. And I'm not saying it happened because of the acupuncture, but I think it might have. And oh, she's wow. like, okay. well, I'm not sure about that. Like, I probably put her off by even saying that. But um, sure. It started to happen again another time, like maybe a few sessions mm -hmm. later. But because I felt it, I like staved it off. I like, okay, I'm okay. not going there again. Mm -hmm. But now when I think about it, I've kind of forgotten just how bad it is. And part of me goes, yeah. all right, if I have to go through that again because some kind of treatment mm. would be for a greater good, yeah, maybe – that would be worth it. So, you know, as if I had that kind of power to choose <laughs> what trade-offs I will accept, you know, mm -hmm. we, we don't have control over these things, but yeah, what was that related to? Well, we, we, were, we were talking about, you know, pain and yeah. the ability to forget pain. Resilience. Yeah. Resilience. Yeah. How about it? Do you want to read now? Why don't we have you read? Yeah. So, okay. and right. I asked you to read something that actually comes quite late in the book. It's a um, mm -hmm. couple pages, chapter 32, yeah. which is probably in the, maybe the start of the last quarter of the book, shall we say. Yes. So we kind of have given, given away, it's not a secret, that Marva DeLonghi and, and Luke and all mm -hmm. the people in this book have multiple lives so this is deep into yeah. quite a few of the lives we won't give away quite how many although yes. maybe you say so any other setup before we hear 
No, I think that's a, a great setup. I mean, we've talked about this book as a as a detective mystery, and so every every step along the way should reveal like a a, a small nugget more about what's coming and what's going to happen. And um, but yeah, I, I love that you picked this chapter because this is such a meaningful personal moment to me. But uh, yeah, I'll I'll take off when when you say go. Okay. And so there's a there are a couple of characters in here. We introduced people yep. to Luke. We introduced people to Lyle. There's mm-hmm. the guy who's carrying us through this chapter as a doctor because Luke is in the hospital. Yes. There's a yep. reference to the cookie burglar who is a recurring <laughs> yeah. character. But aside from those folks, I don't think that, you know, just kind of go with it. Yeah. It'll be fine. Okay. Yeah. You're going to get a really good sense if you're listening to the, the kind of book it is. And I think that this doesn't have any major spoilers. So that's really fun, too. Okay. All right. Whenever you are ready, Jody, go ahead. The following morning, a parade of nurses and doctors marched through my room. Dr. Christopher talked about me like I was absent, deaf, or dead. He used $5 words as if he owned a million-dollar dictionary. Her body is inimitable in the annals of medicine. See here, evidence of multiple fatal wounds, none which managed to slay her. We find no remediation for shattered lumbar vertebrae, no treatment for bullet shrapnel in her temporal or sphenoid bones, though an MRI indicated at least two bullets penetrating the cranium. She sustained heavy scarring in her lungs from ammonia inhalation, and though utilization of all four limbs can be demonstrated, internal scarring and bone fragmentation suggest dual femoral amputation. No less curious are the bruises of her throat. The depth of two-inch subdermal would indicate tracheal trauma commensurate with manual strangulation within the past 48 hours, yet the presence of ammonia vapors contradicts those findings, appearing nearly at parallel chronology. Dr. Christopher glowed as he approached his hypothesis. Her ability to heal suggests experimental medicine. Given the absence of procedural documentation, all tests support some form of undocumented regenerative therapy. Of course, what we expect to find is that this woman has been treated under an alias, which, when we ascertain, could establish medical chronicity. But until then, we must operate with the scholarship at hand. Considering only the evidence her traumas raise, false positives from multiple suicide attempts, the images of Miss Mia's body indicate unique cellular pathways, a most fascinating discontinuity, a new branch of lymphatic evolution. Additionally, It provides primary avenues for inquest and interrogation regarding mental health and its relative impact on human survival. Periodically, a nurse, accompanied by several orderlies who appeared eager to wrestle, should I attempt escape, would transfer me into a wheelchair and roll me into Bright Room, where technicians in lead-lined vests microwaved my body. Who knew you could empathize with a corn dog? On the third day, They moved me to a two-patient room with open access. Everything in the room was affixed to the walls or floors by metal brackets and heavy screws, but otherwise freer than my previous accommodations. The second bed in my room lay empty. Daily, nurses administered medicated oxygen to rehabilitate my lungs. An ENT spent hours with me producing a post-treatment care regimen. Toward the end of the first week, an OR doctor took me to the first floor, put me under, and removed shrapnel from my skull. 
When I was returned to my room, the headache throbbing behind my eyes felt like punishment for every foolish decision I'd ever failed to make. Following a week of minor surgeries and respiration therapy, I felt stronger than I had in years, whatever that meant in the context. Dr. Christopher said my vitality was also likely a symptom of sobriety, noting my liver and kidneys showed acute damage from alcoholism. I didn't plan to quit drinking if the choice was mine, and if I would have smelled smoke on anyone's jacket, I might have licked the fabric while clawing at the pockets for a cigarette. Midway through the second week, Dr. Christopher appeared in my room after hours. He tended to appear in his final rounds between 5 and 6 p.m., but somewhere around the 10th day, he dropped in after dinner. By then, I'd graduated to level two and ate with my peers, who all smelled as crazy as they acted. I'd just returned from dinner, wondering if I'd misidentified the serial burglar when Dr. Christopher's form filled the jam of my room. His arrival startled me out of a deep thought. Facing the door, I sat on the floor in the corner. He stood there, looking down on me. I need to tell you something, but you've been thriving in your treatment, and I worry. I already know. Lyle's dead. He's in a coma, but Marva DeLonghi. Does that mean you don't think I'm crazy? Crazy is never the word I would have used. Do you believe my story? No. Dr. Christopher scratched his chin. I don't believe the properties of linear time function any differently for you. I don't believe you've ever died. But I can acknowledge you knew something important. His ear, scratch, scratch. I erred in dismissing your warnings on the basis that you suffered from psychosis. You still think I'm psychotic? Not exactly, but if you're working your way up to an apology, I don't care. Lyle's as good as dead. Marva is dead. I wanted to say I won't be far behind, but I didn't need to distract Dr. Christopher, so I scratched his ego. Tell me how it happened. Someone attacked and murdered Mrs. DeLonghi at Regency, just as you said. Scratch, scratch his forehead. Mr. Kapichik was wounded defending her. Kapachnik. I corrected him absentmindedly. Defending her? Dr. Christopher adjusted his eyeglasses and scratched his upper lip. The police failed to detain the suspect, but they're conducting a citywide search as we speak. Of course. How? He said an ongoing investigation was underway. Eyewitnesses at the mall described a tall, tattooed man assaulting Marva DeLonghi. He carried a heavy axe. The owner of Christian Noble Furs said Lyle had spotted the attacker moments before the man entered the store. A brief scuffle ended when Lyle was knocked unconscious by the dual end of the axe. The attacker then confronted Marva. After murdering her, he fled. Lyle sustained brain damage. He would never recover beyond a vegetative state. The police? Dr. Christopher scratched his chest. I don't know how to say this. Scratch, scratch. Have opened a homicide investigation. They've requested an interrogation regarding your prior knowledge of Marva's situation. Fragments from a lifetime of dreaming pulsed through my mind. There wasn't enough air in the world to fill my lungs. I had nothing to do with any of this, but I wasn't sure. Try mapping a reliable alibi from the psychedelic soup of my life the past days. Try even finding language to explain what a day looks like when death and resurrection feature prominently in the timeline. What can I tell them 
that I haven't already said. Dr. Christopher scratched his hand. They think you might have involvement with the man they're hunting. If I didn't find a way out fast, I was going to be starring in primetime manhunt, framed as an accomplice and kept on round-the-clock surveillance. I'm a victim in all this. Why can't anyone see that? Dr. Christopher stood quietly, eyes fixed on the wall. You'll forgive me, scratch, scratch, if I doubt your claim. The victim paradigm is common in many mental illnesses. But the truth is, you knew the location and approximate time of a gruesome murder. You'll forgive me if I don't buy the scientific mumbo-jumbo. There's a perfectly good explanation for everything that's happened. I mean, do you really think my partner would have been trying to prevent a murder? I had a part in planning? Does that make any sense? I've already told you what does make sense, but you refuse to believe because it doesn't fit your predetermined understanding of the world. I scanned the room for a pack of cigarettes I knew wasn't there. So do your worst, because it's clear you haven't listened to a word I've said. Dr. Christopher turned his head and fixed me with eyes for a long time, scratching his elbow. Finally, he stood. I'm sorry. He left the regret open-ended. It turns out we can't prevent much. I don't want to wax philosophical, but it took a great deal of failure for me to resolve myself of blame. I watched Lyle die so many times, every time I thought I could stop it, but he had to die. It was written in the script. Don't ask me who writes the script. I don't know the answer, but I know there are dramatic rises and climactic falls, endless falling. If events derail, if the story goes off script, life can erase a page and start fresh. Start from the moment before we enter our office, return our belongings and our loved ones, but never deliver our dearest hopes. Well, I hope you wax philosophical more yeah. often. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. How does it feel to read it? Yeah, it's actually, it's very emotional for me, if I'm honest. Uh, thank yeah. you for picking that chapter. Yeah. I don't know that I would have picked it for, for myself. And as I was reading it, I was feeling a lot of, I, I, I would say the thematic heart of the book is in that chapter and, and uh, sort of shocked that you, you found that it, it, it means a lot to me. I'm, I'm glad it was, I have to say, it's the one that sort of like <laughs> ah, appeared in lights when yeah. I read it. I was like, okay, here's something. <laughs> here's something. Thank you. There's, there's a lot of great writing in this book. There is a lot of great plot and uh, there's a lot going on, yeah. but th these are some of the themes that I feel like, um, you're really working on yeah. and, um, I really, really commend you for Thanks. it because it's it's a big it's a big thing. You must have had to do a ton of research for this because yeah. there's a lot of like you know this was a hospital scene, mm. but there's a lot of anatomy things <laughs> yeah. and you know uh, did you did you do a lot? I'm being very vague no, about all, all. <laughs> all the grisly stuff, yeah. but. Um, was there a lot of research involved in writing? Yes this? and yes and no. So some some of the research comes from the life that I've lived. Uh, so my mom knew that she wanted to be a, a nurse from uh, an early age, and uh, so I grew uh -huh. up. She was a NICU nurse from from literally the day I was born until about eighteen months ago. She finally retired. But 
I knew a fair amount about the medical profession from her. And then um, she always really recommended highly the lifestyle that comes with being a nurse because you can do maybe three 12 hour shifts a week and then get four days off. And so I started, I started college to be a nurse. I was going to be a bariatric nurse um, because they always need bariatric nurses. If you're out there and you're listening and you're on the fence, bariatric yeah. nursing is really important. It's well paid. What I have to ask, what uh, is that bariatric? I feel like I should no, know. No, not at all. Um, and it's, it's, it's good that you don't. So uh, bariatric nurses are specifically for people who have weight issues. So um, it's anything that, oh. that is people who are, uh, and I use the word gross, not in like disgusting, but grossly overweight. Uh, that is where bariatric nursing comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and, right. and it is, it's a, it's a okay. physically challenging <laughs> kind of nursing to be involved in, but it's very needed right now. And a lot mm -hmm. of people won't get into it. And so I started out thinking that's what I was going to do and discovered that as much as I really love people, I actually found nursing boring. I know that sounds crazy, but I was bored and I would do some of my shifts when mm. I was toward the end of that degree and, and realized that eight of the 12 hours were just me trying to entertain my brain because there was nothing going on and nothing I needed to do. Wow. And so that was when I yeah. switched out because I thought you need, Interesting. you need just more compassion than apparently I had or something. Hmm. And that's one example of a few. Well, it wasn't meeting your challenge, it seems, yeah. either. Like, I, you know, you always talk about liking to take on yes. challenges and learn new things. And so if it started getting boring, I can yes. see, yeah, like, this is not going to cut yeah. it. Yeah, for, for a career that felt very true to me. So at the same time, I just want to say to all of the nurses out there, it's nursing and teaching, in my opinion, are the two absolutely most necessary professions mm. and they're they're never glamorous and they don't pay what they ought to and so for the men and mm. women who teach and who nurse i just have so much admiration mm. it's a it's a very noble thing yeah. to do so was that part of even why you went in this detective direction like that was a world you felt comfortable like populating with knowledge imagery you yeah know. i that's a that's a more challenging question because the the truth is is that the the first book I wrote I mentioned earlier is the stories of Bogey, and that really was um, auto fiction. So the perspective character is partly me and partly a character named Bogey, and much of that book I wrote as it was happening to me. So I would write my day and mm. turn it into kind of a plot. But what I realized at the end of it was, despite my thesis advisor really praising the book and loving it, I couldn't find a literary agent. And at that time in my life, I didn't realize that self-publishing was maybe a viable option. And it might not have been at that mm -hmm. time. Maybe, I don't know, it's a totally different conversation. But at any rate, I set it mm -hmm. aside and I looked at what was maybe commercially viable. And I, I realized that I had some interest right, in writing right. a detective story and I knew that that was commercially viable. So that was more of a, a me thinking my deepest dream is to be uh, an author who can actually support himself and mm -hmm. his family with his words. Yeah. And so I chose detective fiction to do that. And um, irony is I got yeah. the literary agent. Annie Baumke is a, an amazing human being. And she made the book infinitely better than it was when I sent it to her. But we could never find a publishing deal that made sense. We got one offer 
at the end of a three-year search, and it was going to be for the spring of 2025, which is obviously not even yet. I did finally decide. I looked at my wife and I said, this is the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened, but I'm going to part ways with Annie and self-publish. So yeah, I wrote a detective story because I thought I could sell it. Yeah. But saying that, I love writing detective stories and I have no shame about that. So the discovery was wonderful. Nor should you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's no, that's, that's fantastic. And I give the highest praise and kudos to people who are really making a go for, you know, you are raising a family to earn a living doing writing is no small task. So yeah, since you have this deep, both curiosity and desire to learn, grow, I think detective novels Mm -hmm. are like the perfect fertile ground for that because you can just keep going and going and going and hey you picked a theme where resurrection like people keep coming back so it's sort of it does lend itself to many continuing stories what have you learned most what's your big takeaway in this book that you're doing differently Mm. because i know you're working on more already right so what's the next how's the next stuff Going. Okay, so th- just briefly, um, I oh, I meant when I wrote this book for it to stand alone. Um, one of one of my favorite novelists just recently died. His name is Cormac McCarthy. Oh yeah, brilliant yeah. author, and he wrote this book called The Road. And yeah, I read it a certain way based on my own life experience, and it's easily uh, among my favorite books. Um, but a lot of people who read it feel like it's depressing, and and. Um, I recognized at some point along the way that the book reads you as much as you read the book. However, you come into the book. That's how you're going to perceive the end. And so mm. um, I wanted to do that with The Nine Lives of Marvin DeLonghi. But again, there was actually an inflection point where I said, um, I need to support my family. And a series makes sense. And these characters aren't dead to me. So let's see where they go. And that, that does force a choice at the end of the book. If you do read the book, you'll, you'll know why it's a bit ambiguous what really happens until you realize there's a serious. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that the reason that I say that, I apologize. I, I build these giant structures in my head and then I forget where I'm going. <laughs> uh, I feel you on that one too. Believe yeah. me. Bring me back to ground really quickly. Wait, where was I yes, going? Exactly. All the diversions. Yes, That's all right. No. Yeah. So what's next? Like, what did you, yeah. what What were your lessons, Jody? Yes, thank you. So a couple of things, uh, just real world is people don't respond really well to Lyle eating. So are there ways that I can continue to keep that character and yet make it slightly more palatable? And I think that that's part of the, the learning process is saying uh, Lyle is always going to be the guy mm-hmm. who eats an absurd amount of food. But if there are ways that I can use that more intentionally than I realized I needed to, it'll make a better book. Mm-hmm. Pacing is really important. I didn't know when I wrote this book that a lot of people would feel like you don't get a ton of character development because of the restructured lives. Like a lot of people read mm. that and don't think that your characters are progressing. To me, they were. And so I've learned a little bit about that. Those are just some of the technical craft parts of the the question. However, um, I will say this to anybody who writes, whether you're writing memoir or biography or novel, the characters that you focus on will become part of you and actually change you. And when I 
dove into this. I had a friend in my undergraduate program who dared me to write a character who was the opposite of who I was at that time. And so at the beginning of graduate school, I was, I would say, a fairly devout Protestant Christian with very strong Christian beliefs all around. And so I think that one of the truths of the Christian faith is that they really have a a male-centric view. The man is supposed to be the head of the household and that the woman is subservient. And that was the world I grew up in. It was the world I believed. And through writing Luke, I took up his challenge and I'm forever changed. Mm -hmm. I'm probably still rough around the edges. I'm still learning things. But having gone on this experience with Luke and learning a little bit about the way that women think. That's where I did most of my research, by the way, going back to your previous question is, I ask women all the time, does this feel like a woman to you? Is her thinking accurate? And many women who have read it have felt like it feels like a woman. And so I'm, I'm proud of that. But also, again, going back to that thing, like I'm humbled by the experience. To be a woman is, and again, I can't say this from experience, but just living through Luke, like, is so hard and so demoralizing sometimes just to be a woman. Mm. And I didn't know that for my whole life. And so um, I learned a lot about that. And I I felt that through her. Yeah. And I'll say, I think it is, I mean, this is called Daring to Tell. And I think it is so brave to take on writing Mm. a character of, first of all, someone who is, the opposite of you in any way at all a character of a different gender which i think is is very brave to do and patchett did that when she wrote um is it the dutch house it's that's right the little character is male yeah. yeah and I was like, I'm just stunned. I was stunned when she did it. Mm. And I know writers have done yeah. this through time. It's not like it's, you know, unique. But at the same time, I go, that's so hard. I can't imagine. Like, I am, when you say about, like, first of all, I think I would be terrible at writing anything from the perspective of a man. I mm. So I don't imagine things in that way. Yeah. But to the point of character development, I think that any writing does include character development. And the character I'm most interested in developing is me. Yeah. (laughs) Because I go, I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, I am realizing through the course of my life, I am grateful to have lived long enough that I start having the point where I go, who am I really? Like, my writing is about learning to trust myself and understand who I am. And I can see how that through characters is a similar endeavor. So again, going back to kind of these inclinations through fiction and nonfiction, those happen in different ways. And so that's just fascinating. Mm. So I, I, again, say commendations on taking it on. Congrats. Um, It's funny you say about being hard to be a woman because I think, oh, it's no, it's quite easy, (laughs) (laughs) which is not fair either. You know, all of these are one person takes. Uh, Another writer I had on recently, I probably won't quote her exactly, um, but Charlotte Maya, who wrote a brilliant, beautiful memoir called Sushi Tuesdays about the suicide death of her husband. I mean, talk about difficulties to live through. 
one thing that she says, I believe late in the book is there is only one story and they're all different. <laughs> I love that. And um, that's kind of how I feel about, you know, that's mm -hmm. why I feel like we, everyone has a story to tell. Yeah. Anyways. Now I've lost my point again, too, about coming through, oh, just write, writing from the perspective of a different gender. Mm -hmm. That's that's really brave. Thanks. Oh, and what you're going to be doing next. Oh, okay. So I have one more yeah. question, and then I promise I'll let oh, you go. Great. When you think about character development, another thing that has been a common interest on both of our podcasts has been the Enneagram. Oh, Have yeah. you used that in the course of thinking about your characters and where their centers of intelligence are and where their energy yeah. goes? Like, cause I think, I mean, I love it. I find it completely mm -hmm. compelling and interesting to, um, just to help me think about me, but I can see how for a writer, it would also be a huge, um, kind of another resource, like a way to think about character development. Yeah. Um, so I have not used the Enneagram to actually develop the characters. It's a newer thing that I discovered kind of after. So midway through the eight ball is when I really started to get involved in that and thinking about it. It's a brilliant thing. I'm assuming the eight ball is your next book. Yeah. Eight ball, eight ball magic of Susie Q is, is out and. Oh, oh. Congrats. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a fun journey. And I'm working on the 24-7 the of a Russian named Ruskov. But yeah, I, if you could see the documents that I have about my characters, it's not exactly a neogram, but I create a document. It's a living document. It does change a little bit as I start to understand them better myself. Because there's a funny part that, like, for example, in The Nine Lives of Marvin Longhai, there's a character named Annie who's a bartender. Um, and that was actually before I got my my agent, Annie Bomke. But when I wrote her, she was sort of a one-off character, not a real person who tended bar at Jake's, but just uh, this like idea of a person. And she has had a recurring role in each of the subsequent novels. And so now I've written her into the, the outline of the fifth book in the series, where she's going to have like a kind of a, a consequential piece. And so mm. I think that that's true of fiction in a way is that sometimes a person exists and you don't understand that they're going to become important to you. And it's because they speak to you in the page in this very limited moment and you realize that their outlook is surprising mm. to you. I think it's mm. weird about writing in general, and I'm sure that you could relate to this. In fact, I sense it when I read about the caterpillar in the moth or excuse me in the butterfly i sense that surprise from you you had no clue mm. what you were actually doing until it happened to you and you were just like this is profound and they wanted to share it with the mm. world so that is like that minor character stepping into the page and you have no clue how important they will be but when they do they they awe you and they don't feel like your creation they feel like somebody who walked into your life yeah. and then just yeah. asked you to to tell their story. So isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. Yes. It's, it's surreal. That's something that I've heard writers say for so long. Mm -hmm. And I never really got that. But um, the other writer I have just absolutely fallen in love with most recently is Abigail Thomas, mm -hmm. who has so many, she has quite a few memoirs out. She is, uh, I feel like I very much 
relate to her approach, which is like, if I, if I don't know what the end, you know, I don't know the ending of a book. I don't know. I yeah. write to figure something out. And so that's, that character development is kind of the same thing that I would always be like, how can you not know? But, I, but yeah. it is that exploration on the page. Yeah. Oh, Jody, this has been very fun. So, okay. The one there. more question, this is it. Yep. One more. And you probably know what it is. <laughs> what was most daring about what was most daring about, uh, you know, maybe not even just the nine lot or maybe no, nine yeah, lives. Yeah. What was what was most daring about this for you, about writing the book for you? Oh, I want I want to have a great answer right now. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I did have something on deck for you. Um, standing up again. I really do believe that. Uh, I hope when all the math is done, Michelle, I hope so much that I'm just standing up because I think it's really hard to keep standing up. Uh, what do you mean by that? The, the amount of work that goes into writing is more than I think most people know. Uh, yes. And there may be pockets of the country where being an artist or a writer or a thinker or an intellectual or any of those things is more accepted and not necessarily looked at strangely, but in the world that I inhabit, mm. um, being, being a writer, yeah, it's probably true of everybody. I'm just saying, I, I maybe somebody listening right now is like, I've never experienced this before. <laughs> and that's, that's great, great on you. But um, to be a writer, to be a writer is to be laughed at. Um, until you pay the bills and drive your Lexus, and I'm never going to buy a Lexus, by the way, but <laughs> until that happens from your writing income, everybody says, how cute. That's so cute. Mm. So that's what I mean about getting up. Interesting. Yeah. Every single yeah. day I get up and Doing I keep. It keep going. Um, and so that's, what's most daring about writing this novel is that I did take the feedback that people weren't ready to read Jody, the, the philosopher who wrote the stories of Bogey, but maybe they'll read Jody, the, the detective novelist who spins a yarn about a crazy, heavy drinking, heavy smoking, crude, violent detective. Um, <laughs> and I don't know where the road takes me next, but that's just the, the continued journey is I'm not going to stay down. You can knock me down, but you can't yeah. keep me down. And that's all I can tell you so far. I love it. Well, thank you so much. It has been my pleasure yet again to have another conversation with you. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I've been thinking more about that pain thing. Why I feel the need to remember pain. And I think it's tied into the reason why I love memoir so much, why I love reading people's true stories. And I think that it's because there is so much pain in this world that comes for every one of us. Not pleasant to think about, but it is true. And a couple of things spring out of that reality. On one hand, it certainly means that when life is being kind, we should enjoy it. And I definitely try to do that. I, I think you hear it in the essays that I read. I really try to appreciate the wonder and beauty of the world. Yet it just never fully leaves my brain the thought of, Okay, what's going to happen next? 
And I love reading people's stories of how they get through all the incredibly difficult situations that they go through and how they start over. I do think that this word resilience has come to be pulled out at every turn these days. And I can see why. It's a very important value. But the real work in starting over is just so slow and so hard and takes lots and lots of practice in many different ways. So these are some of the things I'm thinking about these days and what Jody's book made me think about too. Trying to do the same things over and over, ever so slightly different, in order to get some experience other than pain. Maybe this resonates with you? I so hope that it does. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daring to Tell. I have a newsletter I put out once a month. It is called Hit Pause. It's about some of the things that I continue to ponder after putting out each month's episode. You can sign up for it at my website, michellerado.com. Thank you to my husband, Phil Rado, for his music that I use for my theme, Make Me Brave. Most of all, thank you for daring to listen. I will catch you next time. And nothing's gonna break my fall There's nothing in the protocol It's like swimming up waterfall Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground